You're listening to The Critical Channel, a show about engineering leadership, culture, software architecture, other very easy problems. With Maxim Kravitz, Pedro Cavallo, Italo Vietro, and myself, Kieran Patel. This week's topic, boundaries. So the, the question that we decided to, to tackle this week was, uh, well, I'll just read it out. So uh, imagine that your developers want to adopt a new technology. So let's say a, a new message broker, for example. Where's the boundary between the developer's responsibility and, uh, air quotes, DevOps responsibility for that? How much should each of those parties own in terms of understanding and running this new technology? And uh, I think Maxime has opinions on this with a capital O. I think he does. Oh, do I have opinions? First things first. This DevOps word, man, this is so broken. Like people came up with this beautiful idea of uh, actually like making sure that devs and ops don't hate each other anymore. They understand each other. They work together, collaborate in a very nice way. I, I cannot really say that the whole thing has failed, but the name is not something that I would keep I, I have it in my title and i hate it with my gut honestly i do cringe every time someone like refers to me as the devops or something like that like yeah it should not be a title it's a practice yeah the initial right? idea was yeah, yeah let's let's make devs and ops work together what we ended up with who would you call a devops engineer someone who previously would be called a sysadmin or nowadays like some sres are devops people or vice versa. Like in some companies, when you were a DevOps person, now you're an SRE. So, uh, yeah, as uh, you said before, it's a practice. You cannot be a DevOps engineer. Like you're, you're not a practice engineer. That's the practice. Yeah, it's, you're a different yeah, kind of engineer. So I prefer to call those people ops, and we call devs devs, and we call ops ops. And when they need to collaborate, they can still collaborate without changing anyone's title or name or anything. Like, you can be a dev and you can know how to do some opsy things without being a So there's being a, a, there's a website um, called, called DevOps Topologies. I don't know if uh, any of you guys have seen it, but it's basically like 30-odd different Venn diagrams of how dev and ops can collaborate together and like what's, a, what's considered a good pattern, what's considered an anti-pattern. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the patterns in there are like um, transitioning towards some kind of equilibrium between developers and operations. Uh, but a lot of those patterns are also talking about uh, essentially what Petra's question was, like wh what's the boundary between developers and operations? Uh, some of those patterns have, um, we'll we'll drop the link in, in some notes on the show somewhere, Uh but a lot of the patterns have like DevOps as separate Venn, uh, separate circles in a Venn diagram, and then like DevOps kind of connecting the two, or they might have DevOps kind of over overlapping slightly, um, just to kind of explain where the differentiation lies. It's it's quite interesting. To look yeah, at. I really like the the overlapping part. Like that's how I usually imagine this. Like you know a little bit of what I do, I know a little bit of what you do, so let's find common ground there because we're all working towards the same goal. Like. You're creating an app and I'm running it, but it's not that you are 100% creating it and I'm 100% running it. Like there is this tiny piece in the middle when we just, we both have to run it. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I, 
I, I okay. think sometimes it's difficult to figure out like where the interface is in that overlap because I think the overlap is easy to agree on. Uh, it makes sense, but it, it can be very tricky to find like where do you hand things off, and, and then you have situations like uh, you know developers want to adopt a new. Uh, well, our example was a message broker, uh, but let's say a new database. Uh, let's say these developers were uh, uh, they were they were educated to use only NoSQL databases, and all of a sudden they heard about this amazing technology called SQL, and they wanted to have <laughs> Postgres or something, uh, and they made some tables and and all that, and then. When it came time to to to, to move these uh, Postgres servers to production, they went, "Well, hey, operations people, why don't you define some indexes here so that I can have some good performance?" Well, I think I think you're covering two different things. Yeah, I would argue yeah. that it's a different topic. Like it's basically developers uh, are trying to use technology they weren't familiar with. Well, I'm but even not... even even if they are familiar with. Um, like if we take this example of, you know, hey ops, please define my indexes here so my Postgres instance actually runs a little bit smoother. Um, I, I don't know if that's exactly the boundary here, right? Like for me, developers should know that. Yeah, like that, that's, what it, that's what I meant because they didn't know, you know like when you... Exactly, like, but let's, let's even say that they know the technology, right? Like they know Postgres or whatever other SQL database. Um, you know, if you're if you're a developer, you're interacting with the technology. You are kind of expected to know that that technology, how that technology works, because otherwise you're gonna, you know, model your software in a way that it's not optimized for that technology. Um, but you're not necessarily, as a dev, required to know how to to bring it up a Postgres cluster or you know that kind of thing. Is too into infrastructure side of things that. That might be the boundary, but you need to know how to interact with that technology. The same is valid for Kafka or for any other message broker. Um, you don't need to know how to bring those things up unless you want to, but you are not exactly required to know that. Uh, but you need to know how to use it as a DAP. Funnily right? enough, I'm talking it's, as a DAP. It's, it's like ports and adapters, funnily enough, right? Like, yeah. Um, you have, uh, I mean, a good example is a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now is uh, building Helm charts and then providing developers with a values file where they can configure everything they might need to mm -hmm. without shooting themselves in the foot, right? Um, to, to come back to the, the kind of database example, it's ports and adapters. Like a developer might need to, to know how to set an index and it should be their responsibility. I think specifically with indexes, it's an easy argument that it's the developer's responsibility to set that because they're the ones who are writing the queries and who are using those indexes, right? Um, but they shouldn't necessarily uh, know how to go into, like, the, well, like, in the case of MySQL, it's the my.com file, right? And, like, configure all, like, you know, DB settings and things like that. Like, that's not necessarily, like, the what a developer should be expected to do. I think that's a pretty clear cut. Yeah. Um, click up one there. I, but I like... have one and more opinion <laughs> to drop in. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Like uh, it, it, it all works fine when you have uh, like let's say quite simple apps that don't do too much, that don't have uh, like a lot of load. Imagine you have a MySQL cluster now. 
on one hand you could say yeah the cluster kind of mimics the behavior of a standalone machine it's just more performant it does a b c and d under the hood to look like it's a one machine but it's like hundreds of servers acting as a cluster and that's true however usually this magic does change the behavior a little bit or it does put certain constraints on what you can and what you cannot do and you'd really like as a dev you'd really like to be aware of those too like as italo mentioned uh, you need to know just enough of how technology works or how this particular setup works like you cannot just learn how technology works you need to be aware of the details of the setup you are working with right now to be as effective as you could possibly be absolutely i think this this example of the cluster of the mysql cluster uh, you need to know it's a cluster and you need to know how it behaves when it's a cluster right because you might get different sort of behaviors you might get sharding you might get eventual consistency eventually as well yeah all the so, things like nodes are failing and you are yeah. getting redirected to another one you need to know that you need to use let's say another driver for this and the behavior again of certain operations is different or let's say you have a master master setup suddenly you need to be aware of your uh, ids used for primary keys like usually you don't care for those but now you need to know that one master is using even numbers for those and another master using odd numbers because let's not get too much into details of how master master worked for MySQL, but that's a given. You need to have this. And as a developer, you need to be aware of that because next time you do a select and it's like, hey, half the records are gone. What's up? No, no, they aren't gone. <laughs> they are just on another machine. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the boundary there. I th this this reminds me of something that I, uh, I I I read about a while ago, and it's this concept of mechanical sympathy, uh, which comes from uh, car racing, and it's this idea that you know in in car racing teams you have pilots who, you know, they drive the car, and you have mechanics who work on the car. They change the tires, they change the, the suspension settings, and what have you. But um, it's really useful when pilots understand how the car works um so they they have this and that's called mechanical sympathy like uh, they understand the mechanics of the car they understand what happens when they push the the, the throttle down they know what the carburetors or the, the fuel injectors are doing they they understand like the different the effects on different camber settings on the suspension and, what, and, and all that and the more they understand that the the better they're able to extract the most out of the car while they're on the track like they're not expected to go change the tires but they're just because they know more they're able to work a lot better and that, that's 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 how i see it with developers and operations like uh, you're like like you guys said like you're not expected as a developer to go deploy your clusters and, and, and all that but if you understand the concepts if you know what 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 they are how how, how these technologies operate um you could definitely be way way more productive than if you don't and you're also maybe not not putting such a huge burden on your operations team because again like if 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 a driver with no mechanical sympathy pulls into the pits and just goes this is broken <laughs> car is not not going fast i don't know what's going on the mechanics have to work like two days on it to figure out what's going on and if the driver comes back and says you know uh i got a misfire my left rear is um is dragging like whatever whatever uh then the mechanics have something to 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 connect to and 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 a place to begin 
Um, yeah, that's that's a good so analogy, familiar. actually. Yeah, very cool part you mentioned there is yeah. that the more you know, the more you can uh, get as a feedback from the system when you're working on it. Like if we go back to a racing analogy, the driver is on their own when they're on a track. Like there, there is no one around you. Mechanics cannot sit next to you and actually tell you, hey, uh, this happens because you do that. The driver is supposed to know that. And that's yeah. very good when you have experience and you see the system is not behaving the way like it's supposed to or it used to. You sometimes may even know what the failure might be and you can work around it or make up for it by like, I don't know, doing something else or not touching this button until the race is over. But a good, I mean, a good thing there... The, oh, go ahead, Karen. So like the 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 thing is in... In that context of it being a driver driving a car, right? If there is a an outage, basically, if the car starts to catch fire or something, who has to deal with it? At that point, it's the driver. Now, if there is an outage in your application, I think a big part of the question is who is going to have to deal with that outage? Is And this varies from organization to organization, of course. But is it going to be you as the engineer who built that application? Or is it going to be the people providing the infrastructure of that application who are going to have to deal with an outage that could be caused by, say, a missing index, right? Um, yeah, I think it depends think on the outage. It, of course, of course, it depends on the outage, but everybody should know enough to be able to diagnose, I think, what yes. they, like, where the issue is, even if they don't know, okay, like, you know, there's something that's wrong here with, like, again, in ODB settings or something, right? Like, I don't know how to fix that. Yeah. But at least I can diagnose that, okay, like, this isn't a missing index. This isn't something that, that I've screwed up. There's actually, like, a misconfiguration in the setup of the of the database itself, and now I need to go to the expert for that. You know, like, this diagnosing, the diagnosing skill um, I think it's what's lacking a lot in our industry, especially in the dev industry, um, because being able to debug something or to have the skill to actually just dive deep into the problem and actually figure out what's going on, uh, that helps a lot. You know, like, of course, we have monitoring. We should have monitoring. Um, and <laughs> so, like, we should have monitoring, which will definitely help you find out where the problem is. But... Still, like if you have the skill to actually debug something or diagnose a problem, that will give you like a long way ahead in the in the problem. So definitely something to consider. Yeah, so suddenly like knowing how the system works helps greatly with debugging it. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if we go back to a car racing analogy, I think we need to be fair and uh, let's not forget that it works the other way as well your mechanics mm -hmm. are supposed to be able to drive a car. Obviously, they're not going to be the best pilots in the world, but I would really expect them to be able to drive it. So first, yeah. they would speak the same lingo with the driver, and they would understand like what the driver might... Like, let's say there is a failure that might be perceived as something else. But when you don't know how to drive, you have no idea how this feels. Like, you open the engine up and it's like, oh, I can see what's up. But when you've never driven a car, how would you know what it feels like, like this particular failure when you're driving it? So as a sysadmin or an ops person, 
you also need to have some experience in software development actually like writing the code compiling all the things like do whatever other things that uh devs do in your particular setup again not like in general but in your company in your team with the same infrastructure you're yeah. supporting for them so i got a question now um let's say let's still keep with the same analogy where does an sre sit in the in this whole mechanical car driving analysis because the sre the kind dude of with all the the dude with all the computers looking at the charts of like if you know taking it to full that's what i thought it was like someone with a monitoring tool i, I, in front I of agree him. sre is the guy who's not the driver who's not the mechanic he is someone else but he can do both like he wouldn't be again right. the best mechanic in the world or he might be I guess that person would be an, like like a proper mechanical engineer, right? That that would be a person who understands what, how driving works, and they have this understanding also of of, of the mechanics work. But they're more like. But what's the, the difference side. in what's the like if we say it's this is it's the person that knows how the driving car works and mechanical kind of works? Um, what's the difference between this and what we just said about like what a driver should know and what a mechanic should know or more specifically what a mechanic should know well i think there's there's a, there's their own area of expertise right it's not like um it's important to have peripheral vision of everything that everybody's doing and to be able to again get that context particularly for diagnosis purposes uh, and also just so that you can talk the talk with the people who you're supposed to be communicating with right but the area of expertise in the sre as you know as i'm saying it's the guy in Formula One who's watching the telemetry of the car and going, okay, right. like the trim of this is a millimeter off and we are like, you know, this this is causing too much downdraft. I have no idea what they do. I'm just making this up. But like, you know, <laughs> they're going, okay, like we can, sh we can get an extra mile per hour out of this car by right. doing this, right? And that's their area of expertise. And then they can say to the mechanic, you know, they can talk enough to the mechanic to say like, hey, next time this car comes in for a pit stop, tweak this by like a millimeter and we'll get a bit more speed and they can talk to the driver and say like you know give it a little bit less throttle through the corners or something because yeah uh because you know you're causing this this problem to happen that yeah, makes like a lot of sense engineer. yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense i i wished we had more people like this in the in our industry you know like a lot of places that i've worked or or seen sres are considered op, ops people mostly um so they do the work that mechanicals are doing in our analogy um, and which is fine most of the times but then they're not focusing on their area of expertise which is monitoring and you know making heavy sure statistical analysis and mathematics as well uh, like, yeah right know, okay no maybe i'm overselling how complicated it is but at the same time like defining and defining your slos is like a it's know, a crucial thing it, right it's yeah, really important absolutely so. yeah so it's not easy yeah. i have a thing to say about that all this uh, like SLOs and SLIs and other things and the whole SRE discipline brought in a lot of things that are important. Like, no, not arguing with that. However, a lot of times what I see happening is companies are trying to use those right away without making sure that what they have actually works. Like somehow they, they are using that as a solution Mm. to the issues that they have and that actually involves a lot of groundwork like if you read an sre book it'll tell you 
how much stuff you actually require to have already to have all these nice things that SRE gives you. I look at it as like the the next level when everything is working, but you absolutely need or want to squeeze like more out of your system or it's working and it's okay, but you don't quite like it. You, you'd like it to be like even more performant. For that, you use SRE as a discipline. Or when your infrastructure is so big that you cannot just do devs and ops. When you're... I mean, without, without a baseline of knowing how performant you are now, you can't squeeze any more performance out of yes, it, right? but yeah. you can do monitoring, monitoring without SREs, right? You don't need an SRE yeah. to do monitoring. Like, if SRE, if you hire an SRE and you tell them do monitoring, I would leave that the next no day. Like, come on, yeah. seriously, you guys had no monitoring? Like, how come I, I've said yes? I should not have said yes to that. It's a prerequisite. Right, like you should have monitoring in place so you can optimize. You can only optimize something if you know where you're optimizing for. And you need monitoring to do that. Exactly. It's like uh, going back to a racing analogy. You don't have this guy with the laptop looking at all the things uh, before you have things. Or when computers just arrived uh, into racing. Like people were measuring a bunch of things before. Drivers would measure stuff. Mechanics would measure stuff. They would still be looking at engines. They would like open them up and check all the tolerances and surfaces and whatnot. But a lot of it is by feel though, right? Like before you had the telemetry, before you had monitoring, a lot of it was just like, hey, this doesn't feel right. No, 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 it not, feels not by like feel, yeah, like you have tools to measure things. No, some some, some you, things were by do, feel, obviously, yes. Yeah. Like the, the, I agree. But again... Let's not try to uh, make this racing analogy fit perfectly. <laughs> Flog a dead metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was another half of Pedro's question though, that I found really interesting, which I think uh, we should we should also discuss. Which is um, we're talking about, you know developers wanting to adopt a new technology the example being a message broker we also talked about the example of a database right but let's go back to message brokers for a second right and developers go oh like you know we want to use kafka for this new thing right but this team over here this squad whatever they're called this year are using RabbitMQ already or they're using i don't know i am mq or zero mq or whatever else right they already have a message bus so at what point should a new technology be brought in that's going to use, that's going to do something similar to something you've already got? And also, whose decision is that, right? Because um, th this stemming from a team that uh, I've fortunately not worked with, but have heard of from a friend who, um, you know, one, I don't remember the specific technologies, but let's say, you know, one team was using RabbitMQ already and then this other team go, oh, we want to use Kafka. Like, hey, operations guy, can you please install Kafka and all the things? And operations guy goes, well, they already have RabbitMQ over there. Why use oh, we don't want to use the same technology as them. We yeah, want to use I, Kafka I, because. I, I believe that's exactly where the problem starts. Like, as soon mm -hmm. as it, the first thing anyone does is hey, ops person, could you do this? That's your problem right there. Like, yeah, ops mm. people, mm -hmm. either they are included into the conversation, or if they aren't included, 
like you go and talk like i mean when i said included in the conversation either you have ops people as part of your team or if you cannot afford this because i don't know your company is tiny or your boss doesn't like it or something then you go and talk to those people talk to them before talk to them when you just had an idea go get someone else from another team discuss things basically you need to sell this kafka to these people right there's stakeholders i mean they, they exactly exactly there there's stakeholders and they need to be involved from from very early on like you said if someone decides to use a technology and then just like uh passes it over the fence to another department to sort it out then that's you don't really have a technology problem you have you have a people problem you have a process problem and and so so that's that's one thing uh but another thing also is that I, I find okay, not not singling any team or company out here, but just from my observations. Um, sometimes a technology can have such an appealing use case that it feels like you need it. You know, like with with Kafka, it would be like the the the, the preservation of, of of order in the, in the commit log. Suddenly, you're like, oh, I need this because I need. I need to prepare for event sourcing. I need everything to have its uh, its order preserved, and uh, and I need to. I, I I need this. Like I can't do this with RabbitMQ. Therefore, I must have Kafka. And I think that sometimes there's maybe a stage that gets skipped, which is the stage of okay, but are these really my requirements? You know, am, am, is my business requirement really? Uh, completely dependent on my having this specific te technological capability that really forces me to adopt this other technology, or am I just doing it for fun? Or at the same time, was RabbitMQ the right choice yes. in the first place for the part of the application that's already using that? And should you instead migrate and standardize on the one thing, right? But like, um, you know, part of that, of course, yeah, is business requirements, as you say, like, you know, there are stakeholders who are setting certain requirements, and part of that might be, you know, certain auditing requirements or something that, that Kafka lends itself really nicely to. At the same time, Pareto principle, can you do that with RabbitMQ? Yeah, maybe you need to build another little service to do some auditing for you, but yeah, you can, right? So, um... You have to weigh the cost at that point. Like, what is yeah. the cost of migrating to Kafka, which is going to be an easier technology going forward? against you know building a service that will kind of do what we want uh, what is the cost involved there right if you know that well, and also again the boundary in defining that cost between you've got developers on one side who are saying you know my cost is i have to do this migration i have to make sure that i don't lose any messages blah 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 blah, blah. and you've also got for the sake of argument call them operations or sysadmin or something who are looking after installing that who are then saying okay but now my cost is I have to maintain RabbitMQ and yeah. Kafka. Well, assuming you're not putting that in a cloud somewhere, then it's a whole separate conversation about like the cost of those cloud um, service services. Right. But right, yeah, you need you need a holistic view, though. You need someone that understands the cost against the business value that is going to produce, right? Yeah. And if there is no such someone, you all have to do this together. Yeah, democratic way. No, no not necessarily Basically. democratic, actually. The practice we've employed in one of the companies I worked for, whenever there would be <clears throat> a question and people wouldn't uh, agree, like n not that they wouldn't agree on things, like let's say we're arguing Kafka versus RabbitMQ, 
and there are pros and cons, but there is nothing that one can do that the other cannot. We, we kind of want to have, like, let's say Kafka for something that is good to have. And we cannot convince everyone that we absolutely need that. Let's say people cannot agree on the requirements or something. Will uh, we have a person there who we just go to and ask them to make a decision? And they would say, oh, use RabbitMQ, just because I said so. Just so we stop arguing and we actually uh, get something done. I have I have a strong opinion about this. I or rather I feel strongly about this. What you described is basically a figure of authority, right? That's a person who comes in and they're an arbitrator. They or, or an arbiter. Uh, they they come in and they have the authority to make a call. And I think that when you're when you're in that position, you are basically by making that call, you are withdrawing from this bank account of goodwill and it's it's a really it's, it's it's a very expensive operation for a person to take so it's a lot better if you don't have to get to that point where you have to ask ask somebody to you know expend some of their social capital in the company to to say this is how things are going to go and when when i was when i was um a customer facing solution architect and i was like visiting all of these different companies um one thing that i saw that worked consistently well was when you had a culture of ownership where you know people who wanted to do something they would own as much of that as they possibly could um, and also they had a, a an approach based on uh, taking iterative steps towards solutions so instead of having these like massive discussions about which has the most pros, which has the fewest cons, somebody would just go, you know what, I think this is the right tool for the job. I'm going to make a proof of concept here. I'm just going to like study this. I'm going to figure out how to run this technology, how to deploy it, how to, you know, how to make the best use of it. And I'm going to make a little prototype that's going to show an, an actual example of, you know, the benefits that I think we can get from this. And I'm going to use this to show to, to my team, to the other stakeholders. And, and it, it stops being a matter of opinion and arguments. And it's more a matter of let's look at this thing working and make like a more objective uh, evaluation of it. Um, so, you know, basically just removing opinions as much as, as much as possible and trying to have some kind of like concrete things to look at. I think really, really, really helps. Uh, I think to, on to that make though, these decisions. It, it's super, super important that everybody is clear that this is what you're doing. That like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going, I'm going to make a prototype. Uh, so our hypothesis, um, something that you might call a riskiest assumption test or our, our riskiest assumption. It's not quite the correct terminology, uh, correct use of that terminology, but never mind. Our risky assumption here is that, uh, you know, like Kafka's guarantee of, of order and storing all the messages so that you can kind of replay them later on is going to save us time for X, Y, Z in future. I don't know. I'm making up the scenario in my head, but go with it. Um, versus, you know, RabbitMQ, which might be easy to integrate. We might already have that somewhere in our infrastructure, but we would have to build something to do some kind of audit logging ourselves, right? So my hypothesis is I can perform a test migration of maybe staging to Kafka or something and, and you know, build a little proof of concept application to, to migrate stuff from RabbitMQ to Kafka, whatever. But you have to make super clear that that's what you're doing because 
Otherwise, the situation is, oh, this guy went ahead and did what he wanted to do without involving the rest of us. He just kind of jumped the gun. Um, and that might not be what you're doing. You know, it might, you, it might, you might have all the goodwill and you just want to test, like, to see, okay, what happens? And then I can make a more informed decision in future. But it can look as if you're just kind of going cowboy and you're just, you know, you're just like, oh, I want to go, like, build this thing myself because screw having this discussion. I've already made up my mind. Oh, yeah, I've seen this happening so many times. I think I've yeah, actually yeah. done this a lot of times as well. <laughs> I've definitely done this. <laughs> and it it doesn't end well. Yeah. 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 True. I mean, I, mean, I have, I have a, yeah. a very, you know, like a real scenario where it's very similar to what you just said, um, where we had kinesis, right? So we had kinesis in the beginning for our message broken. Um, and we've, we wanted Kafka afterwards just because kafka can do a little bit more but we were like eventually we realized like why are we doing this like kinesis actually does what we actually want to do right now um oh yeah because kafka can have a bigger storage and you know you can do even sourcing a little bit better we actually had the discussion like for real um also like kinesis retention is only 14 days retention etc so you have to build something to retain the data somewhere else Blah, blah, blah. So this goes super technical. Um, but, you know, after a while, we measure like, okay, how many, how many services are actually integrating with Kinesis? And we weighted that against, you know, putting Kinesis to work in, in AWS, which was our, our case. Um, even though it's managed by AWS, we, we still have to, you know, spin up the cluster and maintain it eventually. Um, so in the end, we just said, you know what? It's easier for us to write something to, you know, increase the storage and put in S3 or whatever, um, whatever comes out of Kinesis in a firehose kind of scenario, than actually maintaining Kafka and migrating all the services that we have, just because, you know, Kafka has a, just for this a bigger retention time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we're like, well, it's cool. It's probably better to deal with, with Kafka, but you know what? We're, we're good with what we have. We don't need that. And we eventually just decided not doing it. So similar scenario, um, very recent discussion we had about this. And in the end, we decided to stay with Kinesis and we're fine. So definitely worth uh, yeah, having this kind of discussions in a healthy way. Oh, yeah, that, that's for sure. And I would also add that in addition to having uh, all the discussions, uh, it's uh, at least I found this helpful uh recently when you have a write-up like when you maintain a document where you actually like uh, put all your findings in and you let yeah. people read it and leave comments on that and you make a decision like whenever you get this group of people who are trying to make a decision they all need to read the document first Mm -hmm. And if someone didn't yeah. read it, like they should not be part of that meeting. Sometimes you don't even need a meeting. Absolutely. You just like leave some comments in the document. And in the end, solution might be uh, obvious. It's just there. Like you read the document and you see the yeah. solution right away. Yeah. I'm yeah. Huge witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> We've written a, an RFC for that and people just comment on it. And it worked really well, actually. Like we saw all the history of the decision, kind of a decision log which helps you don't have to have pointless meetings afterwards so pretty good yeah and it can be done asynchronously and you uh, yeah 
fewer meetings, it's, isn't it a blessing? Uh, it's fewer it's meetings. great. <laughs> I think that's a whole other podcast topic, to be honest. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> that's, that, that's very good. Yeah, I, that's another thing that I feel strongly about. I, I'm a huge fan of meetings. I think that having the ability to talk to someone synchronously is extremely powerful. But it's also very expensive. It is so, so, so expensive. And it's so easy to go off the rails and end up discussing everything except the thing that you actually needed to discuss. And it's so easy to just be lazy and show up unprepared, not read the RFC, not read the emails, not read the minutes, and just be like, okay, I'm here. Let's hash things out. And then an hour is not enough. Two hours are not enough. I think the the, the, the thing about meetings is that they're like these super powerful tools that are just consistently misused and they're kind of like the the solution for everything and people just start meetings for no reason in the hopes that a solution is going to come out of, of meetings. Especially for things like, oh, let's figure out if Kafka is better than RevitMQ. Come on. Oh, yeah. You need like a year-long meeting to figure that out. Yes. Yeah. I think that also sometimes it's easy to jump to the final stage of a, of a decision-making process. It's like, it's like uh, let's, let's decide between Rabbit and Kafka. When in fact, what you should do is take a look at your requirements first. Like, why are we using a message broker in the first place? What is it about our architecture that requires this kind of like event broadcasting or asynchronous communication or whatever it is? Like, what, where is this coming from? And, and, and a lot of the time when you do that, when you kind of dig into the, the, the core requirements of something, you realize that actually the entire paradigm that you're following is wrong. Maybe your architecture is better served by, you know, just simple, simple, uh, RPC um, or or H or or REST APIs and and, and and that's it and you don't actually maybe you're making to, yourself jump through hoops by doing things asynchronously that you otherwise wouldn't have to jump through. Right, exactly. So you know, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of, I feel like I'm coming across as like this voice against progress in this in this recording because <laughs> I'm always like, you know, why are you doing this? Why change? But my, I guess the, old, the my actual point is, you know, like what what what's what are the foundations of these decisions, right? And sometimes we don't look at those foundations. We just assume that we have to pick one of these two things, or we have to move, or or, or whatever, and we don't. Uh, analyze the all of the assumptions i see this a lot with technical documents when someone is maybe proposing a new service or a new app or something and the document goes through all of the stages it's like you know the the, the core requirements the, the the architecture the design and some impl implementation choices and then they submit this for review and at this point you have so many levels of discussion and then you can have somebody who's dis having a discussion about the architecture and someone else having a discussion about the implementation and someone else having a discussion about just the premise. And then at any of these levels, if something changes, the, the levels downstream become obsolete and you have to reevaluate them again. The so whole all... house of cards just falls down. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I think that not only do you need to take a look at, the, at, at your core assumptions always, I think that there's also something to be said about this like iterative approach to discussions 
just as you should have an iterative approach to product development, you should also have an iterative approach to how you have these technical discussions. Well, at the same time as well, like, you know, you've hit on something bigger, um, which is that, you know, the, the, the argument of RabbitMQ versus Kafka is not important, right? You're using a message broker and either one is going to do, again, Pareto principle, it's going to do at least 80% of what you need it to do in terms of being an async message broker. The other 20%, you can probably figure it out if you've got that far already. The The real question is, like, as you're saying, you know, should your architecture even be asynchronous? Should it even be, should you even be using a message broker? Um, are, you know, are you, is this overkill? Are you, uh, you know, are, are you causing yourself problems where you might be expecting a response back from something and instead you can't because you have to like fire off a message and then poll or something to get the data back and like after it's been processed or, uh, or like write a second consumer to listen back for a message coming back. And at that point, like, you know, your architecture is wrong and that is going to cost you so much more than if you accidentally picked RabbitMQ instead of Kafka. Oh yeah, I think it's easy to get seduced by using cool technologies. Uh, I, I think that there's okay. This is I don't know how popular or unpopular this opinion is going to be, but it, I think that there's a, a little bit in our industry of design by blog post. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like something is on Hacker News, and you're like, okay, CV driven development. Yes, yeah, this I, is going I, I into don't our architecture. Think a little bit is the right word here. I was trying to be nice. Don't be. <laughs> this thing is huge. I, I, I saw a person with my own eyes who jumped in uh, my CEO's office and was saying, we need to start using MongoDB because it's cool. And their eyes were like, uh, I don't know, eyes of a person who just had like half a liter of coffee after having a coffee break for like two years or so. They, 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 they were so amped. They were like, it is so amazing. I've read an article yesterday. The project has failed. Like they went for it. Like they were allowed to start this and obviously everything like went to hell just because... But was this, was this a new service that happened to be backed by MongoDB? Because in all honesty, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of MongoDB, but it would work. Or is this like a migration of stuff that is already there? It was like kind of a mixture of things. They were splitting a service into two services and they decided to like go with MongoDB for one of these uh, new ones. Which then meant changing the format of your entire data store and just adding much more complexity to the to the project, right? Rather than taking this iterative approach that Pedro is talking about. Yep, but I believe the biggest problem was just going for coolness without realizing wow. first whether you whether you need the storage, whether you need the storage right. in like that stores data in this particular format. Do you need this NoSQL magic? Like what I are the requirements? Uh, I think it's fair that, you know, we're developers. I think it's fair that we get excited about things. Um not only when we read them, but then when we dig a little bit deep into how it works, uh, but we shouldn't try to apply in whatever service we have running in production right away, right? You should actually think and stop and say, okay, I, I actually want to use MongoDB because it will solve a problem that we're having. If that's not the answer, then you're asking the wrong question already. Absolutely. So like, I, I, yeah. I think that's where POCs need to come in. It's like, you're yeah. excited. 
you're excited about a technology and that's great that's healthy that's all of us get excited about stuff on a regular basis right but i think that if your first approach is to waltz into the office and go everybody <laughs> we're migrating everything to mongodb quick today. drop all your tables exactly <laughs> we don't have tables anymore we have collections <laughs> oh yeah i i can still remember pedro after a kubernetes conference like we were still on the same team uh then and oh god yeah you came yes. to back to platform desks and you were like guys we need to move everything to kubernetes and that was a good thing <laughs> like yes but, to be fair we did yeah it worked, but the implications but... <laughs> and it took like three years to actually make this happen that's a ton of work if yeah. during that day you would go and tell someone hey let's i don't know make an educated guess of uh, how much would it take to move stuff to Kubernetes? Probably they would say like, I don't know, two months. No, but right. at the same time, you know, like part of that was a function of the, the size and complexity of the, the organization where we, were, where we were working at the time. Um, because like, I know, for example, Italo, in, in your new role, you've been able to Kubernetesify stuff very quickly from, from when you started. Uh, and likewise, yeah. you know, where I am at the moment, we're, we're midway through uh, a migration of stuff to Kubernetes, and it's much easier because you know we're a team of fifteen people. It's you know there's not that much coordination to do. It has less complexity, yeah. Exactly, and there's far fewer services to migrate. Make sure you read about DNS again five times in a row because you'll need it. <laughs> it's always DNS. <laughs> DNS is always the problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Kubernetes just took it up to another level. Yeah, <laughs> um, but you know at, at the same time. It took it took me you know a few months from from joining this job to kind of uh, sit down like take months to understand the processes that we have the services that we have become onboarded which is already another topic that we've got written down uh, right. for a future show but you know it took me several months to do that and then to be able to give a presentation on how Kubernetes is going to solve a lot of the problems that we are facing why it's going to solve that and uh you know like how how we can make it so that it's not a scary new technology for everyone to learn um and you know i think a, a big part of it is is me being able to you know sit down understand the problem and explain how this new technology solves the problem rather than you know hey guys we need to we need to use kubernetes because it's at the top of hacking news today <laughs> Yeah, and exactly. another argument yeah, that like is, that is a problem. everyone else in the industry uses it. That's another argument. Like Hacker News is the first step. The second step is like, hey, everyone uses it. Let's go ask our neighbors. Are you guys using Kubernetes? Oh, they do. See, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I think that is probably all we have time for tonight. Uh, so... Uh, I think next time, seeing as uh, seeing as it came up, we can definitely talk about the uh, topic of being on board. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, a good one. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so uh, for whoever is listening, you can tune in next time to hear our discussion about uh, familiarizing yourself with a new code base in a new job uh, and how long it should take to be onboarded and how long it takes in reality to become onboarded on a new product, a new company, hey, uh, hey, Kira. with a new team. Hey, 
Hey, Kira. What's up? Are we going to do like a rest of development where at the end of the episode we promise something for the next that just like never happens? <laughs> yes. So tune in next time to hear a completely different discussion. <laughs> Sweet. Awesome. All right. Good night, guys. Have a good, good one. Thank you. Good night. All right. <laughs>